Good evening to you all. It's always an interesting thing to figure out what talk to offer. Because there's so many different ways one can pick up the teachings of the Buddha and present them. Even though everything that we teach is based on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, um, the Buddha has many teachings that elaborate on or connect various aspects of the teachings to each other or teachings that illustrate points or are responses to questions that people ask him. So the Dharma is vast and deep. And tonight I wanted to talk about how the Dharma is us and we are the Dharma and perhaps put what we're doing here in a little bit bigger frame than the frame we usually hold for it, which is my own personal experience of me. I'm guessing at least some of you are thoroughly sick of that by now. (laughs) So I'm going to offer some reflections on not-self and in that process tie it back into the cultivation of, of compassion and wisdom and why it's so important to have a big picture, a big understanding of what we're sitting with when we're sitting on the cushion. Yes, it is our individual heart-mind. It is our five senses arising in real time. But there's a lot to that. There's a lot that goes into creating that experience of our subjectivity that we have when we're actually practicing. So I'll start with a story. Uh, A few years ago, this company called National Geographic was starting to use some of the relatively new scientific tools available to uh, do genetic studies of populations in various parts of the world. And their idea was to kind of look at the population flows through time and figure out how to mesh history and archaeology and, and genetics in order to get a deeper history of the human race. And in the course of doing that, people would submit genetic samples and then National Geographic would use them as an information base and, and come up with some con- conclusions about what had happened and you know what an individual person's ancestry was. So, being a geeky kind of person, uh, I thought, that's really interesting. I've got some questions, and I think it would be fascinating to find out some more about my own personal ancestry. So I sent away for the kit, and the kit came came in the mail, and you have to 
uh, you know, do the swabbing thing or the spitting in a tube thing. I can't remember which version it was. And then you mail it back to them, and then, you know, a number of weeks later they, they send your results back to you. And when they sent it back to me, they sent it in the form of like this uh, little book almost that talks about, you know, the history of population flows and things and, and then gives me my specific information. So it was surprising and interesting to me. And you know how it is when, you know, you've got like a new bit of information of interest to, to the family in particular. You want to share it with your family, maybe. <laughs> so, of course, um, my mother is the, the matriarch of the family and the oldest uh, living person in our family now. And even then she was elderly, so, but I, I wanted to show her and my siblings what I found out. So National Geographic puts you together this book, as I said, with charts and tables. And my mother was interested. She thought it was a little strange, this uh, fascination I had. But then she knew I was strange already. (laughs) And I was her kid. So she was riding with it. She was going with it. So she was interested until we got to the part where my Uh, DNA was divided up by source and by percentage. So the first chart said Neanderthal, (laughs) 2.7%. And then the next thing it said was Denisovan, 1.6%. And it went on to talk about these contributions made by various early humans to, you know, our current form of humanity. Um, And, you know, this shows up in the genome of many modern people, apparently. Um, Certainly did for me. I got both of these ancient (laughs) populations. And as I remember this page, it actually had, like, illustrations. And so it had a picture of an ancient human. And... uh, You know, this was a rather hairy individual, um, clothed in many animal furs, um, to the extent that he actually was clothed. So I'm showing this to my mother, and she, so there's a quiet, and then it's beat, beat, and she just said, that must be your father's side of the family. So so after recovering from that, then we went on to some charts about my maternal haplogroup, which is you. It's kind of uh, U4, which is kind of unusual. So it's a very old one. Um, So this is a particular uh, genetic inheritance that comes down uh, from mother to daughter to daughter, to daughter, to daughter, to daughter, to daughter, um, down very down the down the female line, mother to daughter, to daughter, to daughter, to daughter, to daughter. So, 
I found out that that mine was actually probably originated the particular uh, mutation that resulted in this uh, U maternal haplogroup was probably about 25,000 years old from the late Paleolithic era and probably coming from Western Asia somewhere. So that's kind of amazing, isn't it? That, you know, now talking with my mother who shares the same haplogroup because I got it from her, we're sitting there with this shared genetic inheritance coming through time. And interestingly, when I, you know, researched this haplogroup, I found out some interesting things about it that had something to do with, for instance, my experience on the meditation cushion. So this particular variation uh, means some things in particular about your uh, alkaline acid balance in the brain or something. So that's kind of wild, isn't it? It's like sitting down in the meditation cushion, there's something going on there that's uh, particularly shaped by this inheritance from deep time. But without this kind of testing, I never would have realized this. So looking at our inheritance, looking at our own individual ancestry, you know, most of us know our family heritage maybe for a few generations, if that, right? Some of us don't don't know anything even about our parents, our biological parents. Some of us might know, okay, parents and maybe grandparents, but after that it tends to, to fade out for most most people, unless you're a royal or something and you can, you know, toss out the big chart that goes back to William the Conqueror or Charlemagne or something, but you know, most of us don't really know much. And yet it's interesting because here we are and we are actually the products of many generations of physical evolution, some of which we share with other humans kind of broadly, but some of which are particular to ourselves. But in any case, all of us have so many ancestors, so many generations that have come before. And all of us have a common ancestor, a specific African woman who is common in all of our family trees. And it's increasingly thought a particular specific African man as well. And when you think about it, that means that we are literally related to every other human being and that all of our family trees intersect. Our ancestors are there in the very structure of our bodies and our minds. And we may not know or recognize or identify them as the source of much of who and how we are, but they are actually there. So the Buddha talks about not-self, anatta. And this can seem really abstract and hard to understand, 
when we think about it in overly heady terms. But he's really talking about the fact that the human body and mind and all other things are permeable, are open systems. Meaning, we are affected and shaped and influenced by causes and conditions which originate and extend beyond our particular boundaries. Yes, of course, we are immediately contributory to our experience, and I'll talk more about that later. But there's a lot of what we experience that actually isn't coming directly and specifically and exclusively from ourselves. For instance, let's just looking at the biological heritage of human beings. You know, if you look at the human brain, you can see we share analogous structural parts of it with reptiles. You know, this gives us the capacity for quick reaction without thinking. Fight, flight, freeze. Have you heard that expression? Fight, flight, freeze. This is the uh, immediate mobilization of the system, body-mind system, in the interest of its survival. It doesn't go through the thinking piece. It just reacts to certain kind of stimuli. Moves fast. So sometimes you can see this on retreat when the primal drives suddenly arise in the form of fear or anger just shutting down. Is it us doing it, as we often claim? Or is it just the alarm sounding in the body-mind system set off by some perception, a kind of uh, utilization of this quick neural pathway. So we sit on the meditation with this cushion with this human body with its central nervous system and part of what we experience arises from this source. In fact, you could say everything that we experience arises with some connection or some framing or some cooperation or some contribution from the nervous system itself, from our biological heritage. And then, of course, if you consider how we experience things, there's the contribution of family culture and dynamics. Our body and mind are open systems. We're born with a brain that's shaped by the experience that we have, particularly when we're young. The actual architecture of the brain is influenced by early experiences and environments. And this shapes the instruments of perception and lays down neural pathways. And if you also consider that family, culture, and dynamics also teach us about or don't teach us about things like sila or morality, teaches us about how to view ourselves and others, how to treat others and how we should be treated. This This is learned partially through observation, sometimes through things that are directly said or behaviors that we interpret 
So we learn from the healthy and wise aspects and actions of those around us and also from the unhealthy actions and attitudes of those around us. We, what we learn shapes who we are, what tends to arise in our bodies and minds and how we tend to view these arisings. And many of our views and opinions are actually formed in childhood, either directly from what we're, we're taught or in some response or reaction or interpretation related to it. Some of what we learn is true to reality and skillful, and some of it is not. But because we're an open system, we're affected by family culture and dynamics. And part of what we experience on the cushion arises from this source. But there's a larger cultural view and larger events, larger scale events, that are also part of this shaping. Because the family isn't the only source of learning. The family itself is nested within larger dynamics, a larger cultural context, which affects how the family functions and what individuals experience. So who can doubt, for instance, that war or racism or poverty affects families and individuals? Whether the external environment is safe or unsafe, caring or hostile, This shapes us. It affects the body, the mind, our options in life. It limits or expands choice, supports health, or challenges it. And because we're an open system, we're affected by the larger culture and events. Part of what we experience on the cushion arises from this source. And of course, we individuals have a personal journey We're affected by what we individually experience in the course of our lives, the relationships we have with others, the things that we do, the choices we make, what we're exposed to, what we learn, how we interpret what we experience, what we avoid, how we care for our bodies and minds, who we associate with, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, how we incline our minds, how we turn attention, what we pursue, what we let go of, what we make of things that we experience, the way we view our personal narrative, how we construct the story of me. And because we're an open system, We're affected by our personal journey and part of what we experience arises from this source. In the earlier part of the talk, I I spoke about biological heritage and genetics and how we uh, inherit our physicality from our ancestors. So, you know, our father's dark skin, our mother's eyes, our grandfather's nose. Um, These kinds of things we can sometimes recognize and trace back to that line of inheritance. But we inherit other things too. We inherit in our bodies and minds 
specific effects related to what our ancestors have directly experienced. It's now known that our individual genetic expression can be shaped and changed by learning, environment, and experience. And it now appears at least some of these changes can be inherited, can be passed on to future generations. So in a real sense, your own experience, your own expression, at a genetic level has been affected by things your ancestors have gone through. Some of their psychophysical reactions have been passed on to you. There's some support for the idea that memories themselves can be somewhat inheritable. For instance, there's apparently an inherited fear of snakes somebody or somebody's had a bad experience and their genome changed as a result. In what we experience both on and off the cushion, there's not just the experience of our own life, our personal history, our culture, family dynamics. The ancestors are always there. Always. The deep past is not past at all, but rather arises as causes and conditions we presently experience in the now. You got a lot of people sitting there with you. A lot of stuff. You wonder why it feels uncontrollable? So to take this back to what we're doing here, this bhavana, this cultivation of the heart and mind. You've heard the instructions that have been offered and they've all been about dealing with things in the present tense, right? Inclining the mind towards present experience, knowing present experience as it arises, being there with that, practicing with that. And sitting on the cushion, the mind is aimed completely at what can be known in the present moment. And as you've noticed, it's surprisingly hard to stay there, to stay there, to stay with the right now. And there's dukkha. Of course there is in attending to the present. We're instructed to experience what's arising, what's being known in simple, direct fashion. Just what is there is there to be known. No need to search for interpretations or frame it in concepts. No need to incline the mind towards psychological interpretations or speculation unless it's to see the arising of that speculation, that digging as another event to be known. We move out of the story of me, out of the concepts, out of the personal narrative of the self, right? Is that what you've heard in the instructions? And yet, and yet, the big picture is there with you. Deep time is there. Your personal history is there. Your family history is there. What happened to your parents, to your people, is there. 
your genetics there, modified through time with what your lineage has experienced, learned in environments in which they lived. It's all there. Sitting right there with you on the cushion and chair, right there in your body and mind, right there as you. Where does it come from, some of this stuff that we experience in real time as we sit? The hunt for the woolly mammoth, which failed, and the hunger that followed. The effects of this on bodies and minds inherited. Or the desire to take the territory of another group and to own their labor. The fear of the other, the effect on bodies and minds passed down. The search for understanding and peace, the spiritual practice that followed, the effects of this on bodies and minds and communities extended through time. You're sitting right here with causes and conditions that have been created by people practicing for 2,600 years. The terror of war, the way it affects body and mind, passed down. You know, you could be sitting with some version of shell shock coming down from your great-great-grandfather in World War I. Of course, you don't know it. The power of community, seeking justice, changing the way things are done within the group, the effects of that on bodies and minds handed down. Sometimes we feel we know where present experiences originate. You know, some, sometimes you'll have some experience, you know, I'm having this, this feeling or I'm having this emotion because of this memory that I remember about this thing that happened and that's why I'm having this. Sometimes we feel we know. Sometimes we guess. You notice that? The mind kind of like casting around, kind of like that. I wonder where this is coming from. You know, I wonder what this means about me. I think it's coming from this, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's coming from that. But we generally don't know or need to know where things come from because they come from so many, many causes and conditions. Most of these are not at all personal, not initiated by you. We don't know most of the sources, but we experience the effects as arisings. We experience in our own bodies and mind what has happened from the beginning. It's there in some way and what arises in the present within our own mind streams. An infinitely complex network of causes and effects extending through time, producing just now this particular experience being known. And then there's the question of suffering, dukkha. 
the redemption of suffering. Given the scale and complexity involved in the creation of a mind's specific knowing, how can we take it so, so personally? Can we say it has a self or is owned by a self or that we control it? It's startling to realize that this personally known arising is so impersonal, so beyond our ability to edit or control. But in seeing this, we're actually seeing not-self. We're seeing the impermanence of manifestations due to the many causes and conditions arising in any particular event. And we see that behind those causes and conditions are others just as impermanent. And in this way of seeing not-self and impermanence, we see dukkha, the unreliability of things. All conditioned things are unreliable because they are unstable. We can't change the past. We cannot stop the sounding or resounding of infinite causes and conditions which will continue to arise. There will be dukkha. The instability is built in. But the question really is, can suffering be redeemed? Can dukkha be put to use? Can we, through self-effort, learn to end the suffering of resisting life as it arises in us. This is about the development of capacity. The paradox of it all is that coming to rest in the present moment with mindfulness established is when we come to the place of maximum power and influence. Just this moment, just this now. And it's in the radical act of opening to and accepting present experience as it is that we are most empowered. By learning wise relationship to what's arising, we develop skill in meeting it We neither deny, cling to, nor push away what is manifesting. Instead, we meet it fully in a skillful way. Allowing it to be the way it must be. This is the way we learn to meet experience with metta, with goodwill, with compassion. Meeting what's difficult, we learn to respond with compassion, with care and kindness. In a sense, we soothe our hearts and minds and our bodies by pervading them with confident, trustworthy presence that we ourselves provide, like a skillful kind of parent. We learn to hold ourselves to provide self-support, which is reliable. Everything can arise in practice and does. 
as we've discussed, it's all there. Wisdom from the deep past, from our families, from our cultures, from our own experiences. Ignorance from the deep past, from our families, from our cultures, from our own experiences. Things from sources we can't identify and will never know. We train the mind to meet it all consistently with the same attitude of mindfulness, goodwill, and compassion. Then the wisdom in the mind stream increases and ignorance decreases as discretionary suffering reduces joy arises. And what is meant by discretionary suffering? Discretionary suffering is when we, the human, resists the current of experience and tries to substitute an idea or a preference about what should be happening for what is actually there. Consider the wisdom of this approach, which of course we all employ many times a day. Given what I've just said about how front-loaded and vast the network of causes and conditions is that's actually contributing to constructing the experience you're now having. But the paradox is by connecting, accepting, opening, allowing, balancing. This is the place of freedom. Not in trying to resist or edit this vast network that conditions the arising itself which is what you would need to be able to do in order to make it any different than what it is in the moment. So we practice in this way of connecting, allowing, bringing mindfulness, bringing compassion, bringing balance to what's being known. And this is the way that equanimity grows and becomes stable. that potentially great stability of mind that can be open to all things, touch them all and remain balanced and grounded in wisdom. And in this way, all things, all causes and conditions, those of the present and those of the past, become repurposed And all are used to create wisdom and to liberate the mind. And then there's a piece about the personal and the wide world. We established earlier that we are and everything is an open system, part of an open system that we're not self-contained and sealed off from things, rather things interpenetrate. This means we're permeable 
and affected by all of these influences and variables and including those that we cannot observe. And most of them are not directly observable. In the same way, we are the source, the locus of many causes and conditions entering the world. Sometimes we know we've got some influence because we see results. And we trace those to our actions. Yet many of the results of our actions are not immediately visible or even knowable. We'll never know all that has come from what we think, speak, and do. We're always seeding things which bear results contributing to future arisings. Future arisings for ourselves but also for others. There's this image sometimes of people who have done practice and purified their minds after a period of inner work and seclusion, going back out in the world. And the way this is sometimes described is as entering the marketplace. Entering the marketplace with gift-giving hands. We do know that the upper limit of contribution we can make to the world is the level of our bhavana, our development of heart and mind. That's, that's the ceiling. Whatever skills or particular knowledge or experience we have can only be fully contributed to the totality, to the community, to the world, to the degree we're skillful in a holistic kind of way. When the mind and heart is steady and clear, open, grounded in goodwill, then our actions are the most beneficial. Whether in relationship to others in a family, in a work setting, a community, the development of our mind sets a limit. To the extent we're controlled by greed, hatred, and delusion, we cannot see clearly. Therefore, we cannot act wisely, cannot offer optimally. You know, sometimes it's said, well, what, what's the point of doing this stuff in silence. Shouldn't you be out there in the world doing something? Of course, those of you who have been out in the world doing something, if you've been doing service work or political work or social work or any of those, ask the same question. How can you be out there doing social work, community work, political work without going into seclusion? 
without going right back to what's happening in your own heart-mind and working there. Because they're not separate. How could they be separate? Present, you know, one of the sayings is, uh, you know, problems can't be solved by the same level of development that created them. So if this is the case, then the need for humanity to break through to another level is urgent. But we are completely interwoven. Not just with each other now, but with all of these factors coming from the past. So for the collective to break through requires that individuals pass through the boundaries of their own previous limitations and inherited set points. So yes, it's all there when you you sit on the cushion, all the hopes and dreams and despair and joy and longing and rage, laughter, interest, faith, despair. It's all there. So what do we do with it? So there's, there's the place of practice. What you're doing is completely individual, completely turned to the present moment experience. But what it's involved with, what it springs from, what it leads to is completely interpenetrated with, intermeshed with the totality. So you, in your sitting, You are the place of transformation. No pressure. May our practice be for our own benefit and for the benefit of the ancestors, for the benefit of all who have contributed to our own existence and to the present moment, and all who will benefit from our cultivation. all who are networked and enmeshed with the fruits of this very moment of practice.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.